0: Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no win, no fee personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call one eight hundred Your Claim or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. On eight eighty two six BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family owned funeral directors.
1: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Dabe doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. In this episode, we have an Australian of the Year, an Australian living treasure, uh, and the patron of the Telethon Kids Institute, and I'm sure I've missed about 20 other titles <laughs> she either holds or has held in the past, uh, Professor Fiona Stanley. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Of course, you, have,
1: you just happen to have a hospital named after oh, you as well, yes, but we'll get yes, to that yes. uh, in a moment. How are you?
2: I'm really, really well, thank you. I'm uh, now working out uh, how to be, one, the best granny in the world, two, what you do when you have uh, in retirement and you you still want to do lots of really great things. And I tell you, it is really lucky... Retired academics are really lucky because we can keep on doing stuff. Mm. You know, I'm on research grants with a whole lot of people. I mentor the best of the bright minds that um, both in Melbourne and, and in Perth and and uh, some overseas as well. And and I just love it. You know, whenever you get depressed about the planet, which I do almost every other day, <laughs> talk to these young people. Mm. They've just Got it. And they're so wonderful. Or well, perhaps the people I mentor are the wonderful ones. But I've, I'm loving that actually.
1: And and being a grandmother, I suppose, oh. all the academic research in the oh. world doesn't quite prepare you for being a, a <laughs> parent or a grandmother. It never does.
2: That's when I decided to <laughs> retire as soon as my first grandchild was born. And uh, you just, it's a very different relationship yeah. than being a mother, particularly a working mother, mm. which I found very, very, I was guilt ridden for most of the time I was working with my children. But with my grandchild, children now, three, I just have this lovely relationship and mm. there's not really a great deal of responsibility. I have to keep them alive. I mean, I know that's, that's important. <laughs> All but care and no responsibility. Yeah, that's right. And say. so everyone says, oh, it's great, you can give them back. That's not that for me. It's the fact that the relationship is very different. Yeah. I'm not being judged. I'm no, just having the best. You can spoil them. I can just have the best time, you know, Fantastic. and I love it. I really do.
1: Yeah. We've got stacks to get through. So <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to your, your childhood days. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us where you grew up.
2: Well, I was very lucky again. um, I was pre-television. Yep. Um, Radio uh, was great with the Argonauts on the ABC. Uh, I was born in Sydney. We lived very close to La Perouse. My father was working on polio vaccine Mm. um, as a young scientist. He was a virologist scientist and he was working at the coast hospital called uh, Prince Henry's Hospital. And we lived in a little fibro house (laughs) with 12 other families in this road and the rest was bush. And we had Little Bay, we yep. had La Perouse, we had Kernel, we had Bunurong Powerhouse, which was pretty terrible, and we had a tram to go to school. We went to, I mean, I was going to, 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 I guess it's what called kindergarten now, and I was mm. four, on the tram with my six-year-old brother without a parent with us, you know. <laughs> and we'd go up into the bush Completely and play. Completely normal at the time. <laughs> Very normal. And my father, who was a great uh, interesting man, his father had been the first government geologist in the territory of Papua New Guinea, so my father was born in Papua New Guinea. And um, he built a boat, a, a, an ocean-going uh, wooden boat. So a lot of the weekends we would drive across the Sydney Harbour Bridge in an Austin Seven with a little dinghy on the top, and we'd get into this boat, and we'd sail around Sydney Harbour or, or race it, and then we'd go out through the heads and go up to Pittwater. and Fantastic. I mean it was an amazing childhood, and even mm. though my, he was still studying a lot, my fathers, we didn't have a lot of money. But boy, we had the most extraordinarily adventurous childhood, I think. And my mother was very artistic and creative, yeah. and so we had puppet shows and read lots of books and um, all, all those sorts of things, which make for a very rich childhood. And I, I'm pleased I didn't have TV as a kid, or mm. or um, you know, It'll rot your brain. Yes, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> um, because we had a lot of fun. I mean, you know, um, we were we yeah. were not even. I can't remember being lonely or. Unhappy as a child at all.
1: Haven't times changed? Mm, mm. Mm. Um, I, I've I've read this 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 quote that uh, that applies to you. In my dreams, I would sail out to all the undiscovered <laughs> islands and inoculate the inhabitants <laughs> in a whirlwind race to conquer disease and pestilence.
2: <laughs> that was my eight-year-old dream. Yes, the sailing was important. So you, put that, I loved you sailing. put that
1: down on paper when you were eight years old. Eight years
2: old, and um, I was inspired by a book that. Um, that I took out from the library seven times. And when the dog ate the cover of the book, I was really pleased because that meant we had to keep it. (laughs) Um, And it was the story of George Washington Carver, who was at first African-American scientist. Now, isn't that interesting? At eight mm. years, seven or eight years of old, I, I, I read this book. And it was a children's book mm. about this scientist. And he revolutionized the peanut industry in the South of America, in south, south, South America, you know, southern states of America, by researching how peanuts could be used instead of cotton, which was being destroyed by boll weevil. Right. So even at that early age, obviously inspired by my father as well. Yes. I mean, heavens, the first memory I have almost as a child is him grinding up mouse brains and inoculating them into chimpanzees with polio virus. <laughs> to get a vaccine so i mean that was pretty interesting <laughs> and i can remember the iron lungs and all of the you know those yeah. sort of times so you know i guess i, I mean, was just talk about pre-ordained, little... preordained yes i, know. I think because I someone said to me once oh you must have had a lot of influence from your father i said oh no not really and then i thought
1: oh my god <laughs> hang on a minute <laughs> hang on a minute
2: yeah it was very it was a very very uh interesting time yeah, yeah. yeah. um
1: you moved to WA. Yes. Which yes. would have been a big move back oh, then. Oh, yes. I and I was In into 19- my Annie 56. get your gun
2: phase, you see. So I thought we were going to the Wild West and I would yeah. leap onto a horse. And
1: How old were you then? 10.
2: Right. Yes. And um, we went on the Canimbla, which was an ocean boat. I mean, we didn't fly to Perth. We went mm. and put all our stuff on this. So it took about, I guess, 10 days to get there. And you could have free chips and lemonade. We'd never had anything <laughs> like that. And, and games at night, you yeah. know, um, sort of. Ships games and quoits yeah. and things. So that was quite an adventure. But were you up re- for
1: that adventure as a 10 year old or supposed to oh, just yes, take these things absolutely. and
2: strive, Oh, yeah. no. We, we'd never even stayed in a hotel. And here we were mm. in, in a, a bunk and a boat. And I mean, you know, it was pretty mm. amazing um, for us. I mean, kids have a lot more today than we had, but mm. we didn't know that. I mean, mm. we were just enjoying ourselves. And then arriving in Fremantle and knowing it wasn't the Wild West because there were houses and no horses and things, Um, but it was a very good time for my father because he was here to help set up the medical school. And of course, they were still having the polio epidemics, and so he was part of that drive to prevent polio in Western Australia. Was it
1: was it more or less a, a foregone conclusion? Uh, then that you would enter the field of medicine as well?
2: Well, it's interesting because obviously there was that influence, but my mother was also very influential and I loved languages and those sorts of things. So when I left school, I sort of thought, gosh, what do I do? You know, it was very interesting. (laughs) Um, But I did enrol in medicine, but my parents weren't that happy for me to do so. They happened to be on study leave at the time. So I enrolled without their permission into first-year medicine, which was like first-year science. I mean, it was fantastic. Um, and so they weren't that – because they thought it was such a long course for a girl, mm. and there were only sort of five or six girls in my year
1: mm. out of about 80. I was going to ask April. that. There wouldn't have been yeah. many of you, would there? No,
2: and we were all quite nuts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But I I loved it from the beginning. I loved the fact. I mean, I loved doing first year science. I thought, oh gosh, perhaps I I should do marine biology. So every year I went into, I wanted to do that thing, you know. So it was um it was pretty. I was pretty enthusiastic mm. um student, I guess. But um yes, it was interesting being um one of one of uh, only a very small number of women. But mm. in it's never it's never. I've never had any problem with that. You know, mm. I've, I've I have had one episode of sexual harassment, but. You know, over all those years of going through medical school and, you know, working as an intern and doing my training in hospital and then uh, further on in research, I've never had any kind of um, barriers put up. Mm. And I don't know why, because so many other women, I'd mentor so many women now and men, but they have so many problems and I can't even, I mean, okay, we didn't have change rooms for doing surgery. I mean, who cares? You know, Mm. we're going to the nurses. I mean, that didn't Mm. worry me. But I did. In in fact, I probably had the opposite. I think I had more encouragement uh, because I I hit my research career, which was the 1970s, when they wanted to have more women Mm. achieving and being on committees. And I went on to committees far too early. Mm. I was the youngest person on many of the research committees or I was on the National HIV AIDS Council as an epidemiologist, and uh, I was it was the late 80s. I mean, I was mm. quite a, a young, but it was terrific because I met all these amazing scientists and I, I, it helped my career so much. So I've often pondered about that, that so many other women have had such a rough trot and yet mm. I seem to have just sailed through all that. My that, kids say to me...
1: That you... can't be luck, though. I think well, people probably... Perhaps I played Meet the game and, a bit no, or something. You're not I don't. To be no, with.
2: <laughs> Perhaps that's it. I was so scary. I hadn't thought of that. My girls just say, "Oh, Mum, you probably did have problems, but you never even knew what was happening. You were so hopeless." But um, no, I've just pondered that a lot yeah. because I feel I feel very lucky.
1: Yeah. Mm. And just to add another medical person to the family mm. tree, you married a microbiologist.
2: Oh yes, <laughs> um, now he was a scientist There wasn't enough too. science in the family. Well, already. that's it. That, oh, but they, see, that's a very interesting point because my brother went off and did basic science, and he's a hotshot American scientist now in in sort of molecular uh, developmental biology. He married a, a somatic cell geneticist. Um, my husband was an immunologist, <laughs> virologist. You know, and we we travelled across the world and, and and were in London together. Um, and so the kind of science that I ended up doing was was Almost unacceptable to these basic cultures, so I felt a bit like the black sheep actually. But anyway, hard
1: that's... growing up in a family of high achievers. Well,
2: yes, exactly. The pressures were quite uh, significant,
1: yeah. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, that maybe it was a shared interest that, that that brought you together in the first place, was it?
2: Yes, and um, and also my brother, who was doing his PhD at the Walter Liza Hall Institute, was um, also. My husband was there Mm. too, husband to be. Mm. And so Richard, my brother, claims that he was the one who got us together. But he was an adventurer, Jeff, so my husband. So there was a mutual interest in a whole lot of things outside science, Mm. like. Um, which is good. Well, yeah, which mm. is like literature mm. and, uh, and, and adventure and things like that. Just
1: quickly, your two daughters, yes. do you realise the enormous pressure you place on them?
2: So? <laughs> I know. Well, they d- don't worry. They tell me about it. Um, and they're both very interesting. They've both done non-scientific things. The eldest daughter is an actor-director. She went through NIDA as an actor. And my second daughter is an Aboriginal historian, first Rebels. contact historian. <laughs> but, you know, you know, when I think about it, I couldn't have wanted uh, yeah. careers for them that were so interesting for me
1: yeah yeah we've got so much to get through we've got plenty more to come Fiona Stanley Professor Fiona Stanley is our uh, special guest in this episode of Inspiring
0: Stories don't go anywhere back with more soon you're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day generations of excellence since 1888 you're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day Generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Professor
1: Fiona Stanley is my special guest. Uh, Fiona, you did touch on the 70s there just uh, briefly mm-hmm. uh, before. Let's uh, let's let's go back to your first official position uh, at our Perth Children's Hospital. Um, Obviously, things have uh, have changed a little bit in uh, in kids health over the years, but yeah. what was it like entering that? Oh, it was fantastic. I
2: adored it. I loved um, working with children and uh, but i that 's the thing that changed my life really because mm. I didn 't really know which ap- aspect of clinical medicine to go into and then I realized that once I saw the children coming into hospital, particularly the Aboriginal children, I have to say yep. so sick and so on, and then I actually went out um, during one of my or two of my holidays from my, it was called a residency in those days, you sort of resident medical officer, I visited a lot of the Aboriginal camps, missions and uh, reserves uh, in Western Australia and I started to realise, you know, I don't think I can practice clinical Pediatrics. I just have to find out why these kids are getting sick and I know why Aboriginal kids are getting sick and I'm afraid some of them are still getting sick for the same reasons today, but it changed my whole perspective and I didn't really even know how to spell epidemiology or, you know, understand that there was Mm. a whole branch of medicine that I could do until I hit the UK Mm. and then I... Because in in those days in Australia, you couldn't couldn't train in Mm. public health really in Australia. So that experience at the Children's Hospital and particularly with these um, uh, Aboriginal kids... Was very powerful in turning me right around into a research career. That was it,
1: really. And 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 seeing what you what you did back then mm. in the seventies, I know it's still a, a an area of some concern and some passion for you. Oh, now. absolutely. Uh, yeah. If you could have if you could have gazed into a crystal ball and seen where we are now in twenty eighteen would you have been happy with, with the progress that we've made?
2: In, in some ways, yes. And that's sort of, uh, you know, you'll be amazed to think that. But um, when, uh, when in the 1970s, you know, there were no Aboriginal doctors, mm-hmm. not one Aboriginal mm-hmm. doctor in Australia. Now there mm. are well over 100 mm. um, and we're up to parity. So mm. you've got 3% admissions to medical school and now Aboriginal. I mean, it's phenomenal. Mm. And we've now got or oh, probably 20 Aboriginal uh, PhDs who are now leading their own research programs that yep. have been associated with me or the Institute in some way. Yep. I mean, that's fantastic. What What is a tragic tragedy? is the lack of implementation of the knowledge we have had for so long, well yep. before the 70s, yep. that the pathways into health and wellbeing and good education and, you know, child maltreatment and all the rest, we've known those pathways for so long mm. and we have not somehow been able to implement the very, very easy, um, sometimes a bit costly, but easy interventions that are going to mm. turn that around. We've done it brilliantly for the white population. I'm, and we just s- have I'm sensing not a
1: little bit it. of frustration at... Uh our are politicians here. See, the,
2: see this blood coming out of my head here and the brick wall that it's been bashing. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, because I have researched causal pathways, which are just understanding how disease pathways happen, how healthy pathways happen, and I've been researching that now since the 1970s, I do find it very difficult when the, the political and the bureaucratic solutions are so short term mm. and are so focused on the ends of pathways. I mean, OK, we've just had the closing of the gap um, report out this week. And, but if you look at the investment, if you look at the money and where the money goes in terms of the gap, it's all invested at the ends of those pathways. So incarceration, renal dialysis, you know, the last six months of people's lives are the biggest costs, not even just for Aboriginal people, but for us as well. And we know that if we invested very early, particularly in pregnancy and in early life and, and in early in disease, uh, we would actually make a huge mm. difference, which is actually not just about saving life and stopping people dying. It's giving them a quality of life where they can participate in society. Mm. So it's not as if it's actually rocket science. Mm. It's actually just a logical way of preventing disease in a way that's actually much more humane than saying, oh, we're going to set up renal dialysis in remote communities. How wonderful. Look, I support that, but it ain't going to reduce renal disease. It's actually going to increase
1: it. No. Yeah, not treating the the underlying issues there. And
2: then we know about how to treat and prevent otitis media. And, you know, we know the pathways into truancy, um, some of which are actually um, very preventable uh, Mm. early on. But we just don't seem to it. And and I think Aboriginal people have the solution. That's what's so sad about things like the Uluru Statement from the Heart, where in fact all they wanted was a voice. They wanted to have you know discussions on a treaty. And it's been rejected yet again, another very, very nice proposal that wasn't going to upset anybody. So that actually gives a very what bad is it, message. Do
1: you think? Is, it, is it because it's politically unpopular to, to, to address this issue uh, in a more thorough way?
2: Yeah, we're the shame, it's the shame of Australia in the world, actually. And there, there we are on the Human Rights Council of the United <laughs> Nations. Are we judging ourselves? Um, it is a really, uh, it's inexplicable to me because, in fact, even if you wanted to save money, I mean, it's like renewables. Mm. Even if you only wanted to save money and be cost-effective, giving Aboriginal people a voice and doing prevention and allowing them to come up with the solutions because there isn't any excuse now. There are so many well-trained Aboriginal people in every walk of uh, of life. You haven't got an excuse. I mean, mm. the doctors and nurses and so on and teachers and we could just have these people do these things in very different ways that would mean that the principles remain the same mm. but the way they implemented mm. are very, uh, you know, space-specific or geographic-specific or culturally-specific and I think that's very exciting. So I'm actually really optimistic mm. if only people would bloody listen. I, I, I can't
1: help but see a career in politics. Oh, coming out of I, retirement now, Fiona. I would
2: last two minutes. I would upset every party line. I think I'd probably... You'd probably uh, have
1: to form I'd, your own party. I'd, I'd,
2: have, I'd, get, I'd get sacked within a week. I mean, I've listed some
1: of your, your extraordinary titles at the top of the show here, but one I didn't was Prime Minister. <laughs> well, Prime Minister Fiona Stanley. It's no. It's gotta got be yeah. on your bucket list, surely. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it seems at some point in your career though you you've you stepped away from that kind of one-on-one um you know, yep. clinical experience yep. with a patient yep. and you uh, you're looking at more uh patterns of health, causal mm. relationships, mm. Mm. uh that sort of thing. Was it was it going into these remote indigenous communities no, that, that, actually, that set you on th- that that path? That it
2: did set me on the path of of saying I want prevention. But what really set me on the path, and would you know how that people say What was the moment where everything just changed for you? And it was when I hit (laughs) hit is quite a good word the London School of Hygiene and and Tropical Medicine, which is an old fashioned um, uh, title for one of the best uh, public health institutions Mm. in the world. And I Mm. was in a little remote Scottish island doing a locum, and I saw this advertisement for those interested in a career in social medicine. I thought perhaps that's it. Mm. But what I learnt at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine was how to set up big data sets how to measure disease, how to study the causes of disease without bias and to really do that properly, how to run randomised control trials, how to actually evaluate services. Um, We learnt everything from, you know, setting up registers, setting up um, data sets to how health economics. Mm. So we we were taught by the most incredible people, the top people in the world. I didn't know at the time. I was just some little antipodean, you know, ignoramus. But... Boy, mm. and that did lots of things. First of all, I, I became an expert in public health mm. and how to analyse data. Secondly, I got a network of people mm. because these people aren't weren't just great teachers and inspiration. Talking about inspiration, they were inspirational teachers. What they did was to share their networks with me. So when I hit America, which was at the end of my course, which I'd done at London School and got my thesis finished, and I topped the course and got the prize and did. all this, well, I, <laughs> I never thought I would, but I did. And uh, and when I got to the states. Um, You know, again, I met uh, through the teachers back in the London school, I met all these amazing American scientists who are still, I mean, I'm talking about intergenerational studies. I'm now working with the son of one of my mentors who's now 97 in New York um, uh, in epidemiology and perinatal uh, uh, um, uh, studies. Um, So it, it has just been... A, a dream ride after that. So yep. all the lights turned on for me yep. when I hit London. Then yep. I thought of come back to Australia and I thought, right, here I am. Everybody employ me. And there was a deathly surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and I went into the health department to work for them as ch- in charge of infant health. And it was brilliant because there was a whole group of child health nurses, midwives, and all these sort of public health people who really understood what I was going to wanted to do. Mm. And, boy, I set up a network here that is, uh, you know, o- almost unrivaled in the world for data, data and data mm. linkage and it's still flourishing. And so I'm still doing a lot of work in that. Yeah. And now we've sold it to the Commonwealth and so they're opening up their data sets in a way they've never done before because we set up the birth defects registry here which was you know, the first in Australia because of thalidomide and Agent Orange and we yeah. weren't able, because of Commonwealth, to link it to the pharmaceutical benefits which was all the drugs being used. So you couldn't you know, detect another thalidomide yeah. because the bloody Commonwealth wouldn't help us by linking the data, now we can do it. Now Again. that's right. Now we can do it. So it was all those sorts of things, and because they were firsts—the first birth defects, registry, the first cerebral palsy registry, the first disability—and uh, and we were the first to look at the gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal outcomes for pregnancy because we had race on our certificates. Um, because it was the first, I got all these grants really easily, even though it wasn't really brilliant. Nothing I've done is really brilliant. It's just That's that debatable. it's innovative and, it yeah. was, and then we translated it. So when we dis- discovered or helped to discover, there was a whole group around the world that looked at the link between folate and spina bifida. I mean, we implemented the first program in the world here in Western Australia. So it benefited our local community, mm. which is, I think, why the Institute's so popular because mm. they realised we weren't just doing esoteric research in ivory towers. We were saying, no. Parents need to know all this information. Yeah. How do you have a healthy kid? What can I do? All those things.
1: And that still stands up as one of the great breakthroughs. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. It was terrific. And the, But there are others
1: and, and, you know, science is tough. Will that go down as one of your your, your finest achievements or, or proudest achievements? Oh, proudest yeah. Moments? I
2: think Carol Bauer was the one. She was my PhD student, so she did all the work, and, but we did work together. But she, it's her whole life and she's just been amazing. And uh so, yes, that, and setting up the institute and training Aboriginal researchers, I think mm. they're the three things that, but it's really setting up the data sets because that that's laying down the future for more discoveries, mm. more innovation, more yep. translation. So yep. really probably the best thing yep. I've done is to champion data.
1: yeah. Well, after the break, we're going to talk uh, about the uh, the Telethon Kids Institute, as okay. it is uh, now. Uh, Professor Fiona Stanley is my special guest on this edition of inspiring Stories
0: right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. And
1: welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Professor Fiona Stanley is my special guest. Uh as proud achievements go, I can, I can imagine that the uh, being the founding director of the Telethon Institute for Child Health Research, mm-hmm. now the Telethon Kids, Kids Institute, same place, just a new name, uh, that's got to go down as, as one of your great achievements too, surely.
2: Oh, I think, it, I think I'm very proud of it. Um, it, it became like um, a, ch- a child. I mean, it was like a fa- we ran it like a family, mm. which was absolutely fantastic. But when we first wanted to set it up, it was quite a revolutionary idea and I got a group of institute directors and, and uh, research heavies from the eastern states, and got them over to Perth in the late eighties. And I said, "Look, you know, do we have the wherewithal for a research institute here in Perth? You know, what you know?" And they said, "Yes, you have. We've got good scientists." We had telethon supporting a group of scientists working at the Children's Hospital, and they were doing immunology and, and cancer research, and they were absolutely fantastic. We had my group down at the university, and um, so I applied to be the first director, and um, and luckily. Um, got the job, and uh, but you see, the reason why it was so revolutionary was it wasn't just as um, pure science. We had. Population sciences, clinical sciences, and we had the gene jockeys and the molecular people and everything, all working together to solve these pathways. Because I'd realised sorry, the
1: gene jockeys, the gene jockeys, is that what you call them?
2: Yeah, the gene jockeys, <laughs> the ones who understand genetics <laughs> right. and and uh, and DNA and how powerful that's become. And this is as the genome was being, yep. you know, yep. we still didn't have the human genome uh, sequenced, um, and we've now got a lot of other sequences and other other ways of looking at genetics, which has become so exciting. But, you know, it, you, you can only look at genetics in the in the environments in yep. which they can be switched on and off. So to have an institute that had, you know, the gene jockeys and the people who understand the clinical syndrome, so they were really good at clinical research, and our population data, mm-hmm. which included the environmental things that are absolutely crucial for... Um, You know, seeing how these genes turn on and off during development when we had pathways into asthma, mental health problems, we had the cancer stuff, there was the diabetes group, you know, the Aboriginal studies, we had all of our developmental disorders, including the uh, spina bifida and the birth defects, you know, all in this one building. Mm. And it was very unusual mm. in Australia for that. And we didn't have terrific support uh, mm. initially. I mean, you know, you, you, you often go, come into a place and oh, let's set up an institute. And everyone says, oh, yes. And this, everyone said, why would you want to do that? But I just said, look, give us a go. Well, suddenly it all started to happen. One dollar a year rental for the old nurses building in yep. PMH, you know, um, half a million from the Lotteries Foundation and half a million from the PMH Foundation. We converted that into a fabulous little research mm. institute. And I thought, oh, we can, we can fit people into this, no problem. And within about five years, we had 250 people in the institute and we were bursting at the seams. Yeah. And everyone had to get research grants to come in and it was really, really, you know, it was tough. And it wasn't until we did a fundraising campaign and then Telethon came on board that I had any running costs that mm. I could depend on. Yeah. So really it was the people of Western Australia. I think that's why they love us so much is because they've actually supported this institute. Because, you know, you get research grants but you're not allowed to use any of that money to run a building, mm. you know, turn on the electricity, run mm. the labs, you know, buy computers, you know, get young PhD students so you can actually, you know, grunt the numbers and things like that. Yeah. And so that really turned us around. And I don't think that there's any institute in Australia that's got a relationship with the community that we have, and that is because of yeah. that telethon show. Yeah. And also, it was a wonderful way of talking to the people of Western Australia about mm. the research and saying, okay, this is it's what we're doing, mm. but this is what you can do to make a difference mm. to not just the research we do, but to your own children. Yeah. And it's it's been, we are just so popular, and I think that's why, because people can understand it. And everyone said, oh, no, you can't use my data. But in Western Australia, everyone says, I want to be part of your research. Use and it. I've had people ring yeah. up saying, and I say, oh, well, actually, your son's too old for... Oh, no, I want him to be. So mm. I send out a questionnaire anyway, so they <laughs> fill it in. But, you know, there is this enthusiasm for yeah. people to participate, even if they don't have a kid with a problem.
1: Yeah. Does it still blow you away when you see that tally get to, you oh, know, a, a new record every year, it <laughs> I seems? I know, I know, but that's because uh, it, Kerry Stokes is it's so... It's phenomenal,
2: isn't it? It is, it is. But, you know, have you... it's the longest-running, most successful telephone in the world. Mm. I mean, that's why I stayed in Western Australia, because... Somehow we got this support from the local community and it also meant that we had almost like with our data sets a population laboratory mm. to implement stuff and I wish the Commonwealth and the other States, now they've got similar data sets yeah. that they're developing, they could have used us as a, a population laboratory for all the new things that were coming in in medicine and yeah. healthcare. Yeah. Um, still could do that and yeah. we still might try and get them to do that.
1: You, you, you're no longer the, the director, obviously, of, of the telethon Kids Institute. What's your level of involvement with them now, though? I imagine it'd be hard to walk away.
2: Oh, well, no, I thought it was important to walk away, let the new director, Jonathan Karapetis, you know, put his mark on the place, which he has done. Um, So I didn't do a lot of... Hands on stuff there, but all the research I do in Western Australia is through the Telephone Kids, and I do a lot of mentoring for them. And I, I said, look, I wouldn't go on too many more grants or have too many more PhD (laughs) students, but you know, people just want to involve me, so I have to. (laughs) I have to to confess, I'm still going going on grants. (laughs) I still go. Well, you see, the way you get money from the National Health and Medical Research Council and these other grants that give them is your track record. And I've got a good track record, so I keep on saying to people, I don't want to let you down. I might want to go off and be granny or, you know, go and walk the Larrapinta Trail or something, and um, I might let you down. They say, no, no, you're there as our mentor, as our, you know, consultant. And I have to say, I haven't written a first draft of almost anything um, except I'm now writing some scientific articles, which I really enjoy, but I haven't written that for, for, since I left the Institute.
1: So you haven't really retired at all, have you? Well,
2: I <laughs> have because I can, you know, I don't have to... I don't have to go to all the crappy,
1: yeah. crappy things
2: that I used to have to do. Um, you don't and, have to deal with politicians uh, as much anymore. Well, actually, I am dealing with quite a few because I do want to influence them to utilise the information, but also to realise the importance of data.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've we've kind of lost you a little bit though to Melbourne, <laughs> which is going to hurt people here yeah. well, hearing that, but... Uh, you are dividing your time between the two yeah. now, eh?
2: Well, that's family. And I now have my three grandchildren in Melbourne and my two daughters are in Melbourne. And I have to say that Melbourne is a lovely place. I really enjoy that. And I've become uh, very good friends with a lot of very exciting so people. <laughs> um, but I'll never leave Perth because that really is just such an idyllic place to live. Yeah. And I, I do ocean swims every morning. And uh, I'm not going to do the rotten air swim again ever, but I have done it several <laughs> times. Not as a single person, but as a great uh, team member. Um, anyway, but yes, yeah, so Melbourne Uni has um lured me a little bit i um i became a vice chancellor's fellow at melbourne university for five years and usually it's a one-year thing but i was luckily asked for Mm. 0.2 for five years and at that stage my husband was quite ill so you know i had to ration my time between looking after him intensively and being in melbourne with the children and grandchildren but then (laughs) the vice chancellor rang up and said oh and by the way would you like to run the festival of ideas from melbourne university i said you've got to be crazy asking a West Australian to run a, Mel- a Melbourne festival ideas. They're so snobby, <laughs> yeah. not just about their coffee. They're... And he said, no, no, it'll be interesting. And it was. We, d- we ran it on health science and society. We worked out that democracy wasn't working for science in Australia and we had these interesting debates and everything. It was a whole week of um, lectures and debates and so on. My husband was able well enough to attend it, which was just fantastic. And, uh, you know, we've streamed it out and we got lots of young people involved mm. and I really, really loved it. I think we should do something like that in Western Australia.
1: So is that the sort of thing that that still gets your your fire burning these days? Oh, yeah, I do.
2: And I I realise it's part of my self-esteem too. So when I sort of drop out from doing things which are, I guess, intellectually engaging, but more than that, which are really... You hope we're going to make a difference to how people think. Mm. I mean, you don't want the same old people coming in, listening to a talk, giving a little clap and then walking off out with their, and off they go and they don't yep. do anything. What I want is for people to suddenly realise that there's a whole new way of thinking, which, you know, you can actually do. I mean, climate change, we have to do something about that. Well, that, that community, people in the community can actually work on that. We can't stop... Um, you know, thinking about environmental degradation and biodiversity because it's so important for humankind. And we just have to think about Mm. what we're doing with our human rights issues, particularly the Aboriginal uh, disparity. So, you know, I'm very optimistic that, Mm. you know, with the young people that we have in this country and technology, that we're going to get there. We've got to get there quickly, but we are going to get there.
1: Which is interesting you say that because a lot of people say you know if they're if they're offering their, their thoughts on the younger generation, I, I feel like I'm not part of it. Just in saying that. But I can see a few grey hairs there. <laughs> I've got I can many grey hairs. Gray don't hairs. You worry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that they they talk about this level of, of apathy um, mm-hmm. that they're so lost in you know their their iPads, their whatever.
2: Well, yes. Social
1: media. They they're not engaged with some of those bigger issues. Do you find that as well? Not at all. You find the opposite? Not at all.
2: Absolute opposite. And I think we're we're the ones who've stuffed up the planet. We're the ones who became very greedy and decided that wealth creation was the only way to go. Is this the baby boomer taking responsibility? I think so. And baby boomers are not helping their children and grandchildren in terms of housing, education, tax and all that. That's not our fault so much. It's the government rewarding us. Mm. But the young people that I talk to are absolutely outstanding. You yep. look at some of these young Australians of the year. I mean, they're just divine. Yep. And yep. they are going to be the ones. Look at some of these you know, people with the innovative ideas of what's going to happen with um, how technology is going mm. to save the planet. No, no, no. Give young people a really big boost because really they are the answer mm. and we are a lot of the problem. And I think a lot of older people are apathetic and pretty, pretty uh, uh, narcissistic, actually.
1: Well, now that you've just lobbed a hand grenade at the, at the baby boomers, we'd better take a break. <laughs> Professor Fiona Stanley living in the danger zone right now. She's our special guest in this uh, edition of Inspiring
0: Stories back in just a moment right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Professor Fiona Stanley is our special guest. Uh, Fiona, not many people on the planet get to say that they have a... Uh, a billion dollar hospital <laughs> named after them, but you have that honour.
2: And I'm not even dead yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, even more incredible. How does that sit with the office? It's been open for a few years now. Yeah.
2: Oh, look, it's been fantastic. I, I um, initially I just said to them when they asked me, I said, Look, I'm not dead. Uh, why don't you um, uh, give it an Aboriginal name? You know, and they said, I'll oh, be done a poll. Uh, they probably confused me with Fiona Wood and said yes, that you know that they supported the name. But um, you know, it is absolutely fantastic because i I wasn't heavily involved with it, and I'm still not heavily involved with it, but I did visit it when it was being built. Yep. and I won't say anything about the children's hospital, but when this hospital <laughs> yeah, was being thank built goodness it, <laughs> it was absolutely it was phenomenal. Like the kids and um, it it you know the the sense of excitement. And excellence that was put into the planning and the execution of that program. I loved it. And I visited like, I was like royalty. I had to have a hard hat and boots and, and, you know, all that. But everyone wanted to meet me and they Mm. wanted, all they wanted to say was, are we doing a good job? Do you like what we're doing? And I was taken around and met everybody. I had to meet the person who took away the garbage. I had to meet these young interns that they were training up. But the camera ID on site. Was fantastic, and I loved going to the opening. And you yep. know, they've done a portrait of me out there. And and when I visit it now, I get all these lovely stories about you know how people are being treated so well there. I managed to get a, um, a Down syndrome girl to be to work there because they had a policy of yep. employing d- disabled people. A lot of Aboriginal people were at the opening, and they they acknowledged how important they were in the hospital because, of course, a lot of the patients uh, will be Aboriginal. So I I just think it's gorgeous, mm. and of course, it means that I'm known, which is. <laughs> It sounds really arrogant, but it means that I can go into places and people know who I am, and so I have more influence. Yep. And what I want to do is have influence for things that I think are going to make our society a better place. So I've used it un, <laughs> un- <Australian laughs> like, like yeah. I did when work I was Australian it. of the Year. Yep. I work it because I can actually have, make a difference. Mm. And um, and you can lobby for lots of little things. You can You can actually help Aboriginal people get better care. You can do it so that you can make a difference to the big pictures in society Mm. because one of the projects I'm working on now in Melbourne is to take GDP and say, okay, that's not a good measure, Mm. a singular measure of societal progress. Let's look at all the other things like health and education and well-being and how people feel about uh, their futures, mm. and that project is very exciting. So I can use my name, yeah, in um, in getting people to, Why not? to help us, and I can use it when I'm doing fundraising for things like the institute.
1: Just can you just paint a picture for me? How does it come about that uh, you know the the conversation starts at least with you having the hospital named <laughs> up? Did you get a do you get a phone call from the premier, or do you get a letter in the post, or no, does someone a, um, tap you on the shoulder? How does it? How well, does it we were work?
2: on holiday down on the south coast of Western Australia, and, and Neil Fong and Jim McGinty. Flew down in a plane, and and I thought they were going to offer the institute lots of money. And actually, yeah. what I should have said was, well, that'll cost you 20 mil. But yeah. I didn't have the maths to do that. I thought it wouldn't. They'd just give us the money. But um, they said, We want to name this hospital. And that's when I said, You know, really. So
1: they flew down and interrupted yeah. your holiday? Yeah, they did. To, <laughs> to, to, My husband was saying, what, what, what do they want?
2: <laughs> Kids were saying, What do they want? And I took a while to decide because, you know, I thought there would be some downsides about yeah. it, and I didn't want. That I thought you know what 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 should I do about this it 's a mm. huge honor and, a- and yet-
1: there were issues when it first opened up i mean they oh, probably are yeah. always going to be yeah. with a facility like a hospital, but Look, there were mm-hmm. a number of teething problems. Let's, let's, well, what, let's call them quite generously. But what about when
2: Fiona Stanley blows out? How would you like that as a headline? <laughs> or, or you know, n- n- I'm not, uh, I'm not sterile. Yeah. Uh, you
1: know. Or, Was you there know, a time though in those early
2: Le- leaks. teething times
1: good. when when you thought, oh God, have I done? Oh,
2: of course. But I, look, it wasn't uh, such an issue. Um, as other hospitals were. I think one of the people in Adelaide withdrew their names from the hospital because it, uh, it had so many teething problems. But, no, it's been a really lovely thing. Yep. And um, whilst my, all my research is about keeping people out of hospital, <laughs> um, I do feel very proud, and, yep. uh, and I think it's, it has been a, a, a great thing. And, but I, I still feel that um, somebody else probably should have mm. got the honour rather than me, mm. but there you are. Mm. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm very happy about it now.
1: Well, certainly the naming of it was was not one of the problems that uh, that arose when it uh, was being built and in, uh, in the early days of its operation. So I think the name's definitely stuck and, and stuck well. Um, look, we've mentioned you are retired, but you're a very busy, busy mm. retiree. I I can't even call you retired, really. But <laughs> you don't strike me as someone to just sort of, you know. Spend hours of your time playing golf, or, or oh, lawn God, bowls, no. or going for leisurely bike rides, and, and the <laughs> like. What do you do? Do you have any spare time? And, yeah, and what well, the do you thing do? I
2: really love doing most—I mean, I adore being with my grandchildren. I yeah. mean, we've just feeding, finished reading *Danny the Champion of the World* by, yeah. by uh, Roll Dahl and you know, and um, *At Captain Midnight* by, by Randolph Stowe and things. And they just love it. And you know, yeah. I love reading to them and being with them. But the other thing I love doing is walking in the bush. And I've, I, every year I do two or three major hikes if I can. I did last year, I did the Larapinta Trail, for example, which, which is in Central Australia. And I'm just off in a couple of weeks to do the Three Capes, which is a new walk in Tasmania, wow. um, which I'm really looking forward mm. to. And then I've been invited to a big meeting in Italy. I never thought I'd get invited to any more international meetings. And I'm going to do a huge walk around Lake Como and then do some more walks in the Alps, possibly. It's just, I, I love it because... I don't have anything to worry about except where am I going to lay my head that night and Mm. I'm in a beautiful place walking usually with some very lovely people and I just adore
1: walking in the bush. That's your switch off time. It absolutely is. And I imagine your mind still races a lot.
2: Well, yes, but it is actually, you know, you've got to concentrate about, Mm. you know, walking up this particular path and Mm. not falling off and doing those sort of things. So, yeah, that's my big love and being with, with very lovely people at the same time.
1: What's, what's left to achieve? Have you still got things that you oh, desperately lots. want to do? Yeah.
2: I want to get up a pharmacovigilance strategy for Australia. That's my before I die.
1: What is that in That's layman's That's linkage term.
2: of all of our health outcome data to the um, pharmaceutical benefits right. data. It means that every prescription that you would write would be um, linked to every health outcome, and you'd be able to pick up very quickly any adverse drug reactions. You're able to have a look and see where the doctors are prescribing appropriately. You'd pick up the next thalidomide. You'd, you know, it would really be fantastic. And and I think we're going to get there for that one. But that's on my bucket list for work. Mm. Getting more. Um, uh, research, um, which is evidence-based, into practice and into translation so that we, we would fund the 90 Aboriginal-controlled early childhood services around the country and not stop funding, which is the Commonwealth Government doing at mm. the moment. So, yeah, there are lots of things like that. And I want to do more more walks. I wanted to see my grandchildren yep. uh, grow up and be, you Have know... you done the
1: Bibbulmun track yet?
2: Oh, yes, I love the Bibbulmun. I haven't done the whole track, though. Yeah. And I thought that the other day I might do that, but... Add a that to the list. Is what, It is going to be one of
1: – It's a long uh, one. It's
2: possibly it? one of the great walks of the world already, mm. actually. But I've done a lot of the bibbleman in, in the southwest and on the south coast. Um, well, you know, I think that is spectacular. I and mean, we mm. we're so lucky in Australia. I'm just actually.
1: thinking of ways to keep you in WA as oh. much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that for sure. We can't sure. lose you to Melbourne.
2: <laughs> we'll, have
1: to, we'll have to build a wall or something.
2: Uh, bring the kids back. <laughs> yeah. Tell them to come back to Western well, Australia. Well, that's
1: true. You've got to go where the family is, don't you? <laughs> Uh, We've run out of time, I'm afraid. We could have talked for hours, but thank you so much for sharing part of your, uh, your life story with us. Thank and, you And uh, we look much. forward to celebrating more of your achievements in the years yeah, to come. You've just
2: got to laugh at yourself, really. That's yep. the most
1: important thing in life. You do. <laughs> a, a lesson that's lost on many people. Uh, you've been listening to uh, another edition of Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell, and this one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time
0: as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.